Hello, everybody, and welcome back to In Star Trek We Trust, a Star Trek podcast. This week we're discussing the penultimate episode of Star Trek Lower Decks Season 1, Crisis Point. I am one of your hosts, Kevin, also joined by your other host, Ethan. Oh, how are you doing this week, sir? I'm doing I'm doing well. It's three weeks into school, and I'm teaching all on Zoom, mm-hmm. and then we do the podcast on Zoom. So I'm doing a lot of Zoom in my life. So and you zoomed out. I'm, I'm pretty zoomed out. I'm happy to say that my chess rating has been going up. Now, my chess rating is not good enough for me to even say what it is, because it's embarrassingly low, but still, I'm making progress, and it's going up. I've been learning chess online as part of my shutdown activity over the last few months. Mm-hmm. So, I'm improving ever so slightly. I know, Yeah, I never learned chess, and I, I kind of regret not learning it. I mean, I don't know why I would regret it, because I still, guess I still can. can but yeah, no, it's... I'm, I'm very jealous of people that can play chess. Well, I'd be happy to teach you. On a chess podcast. <laughs> they've, got, they've got to exist. There's got to be oh, chess podcasts. There must be, yeah. 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 I mean, I did find out that there's a whole world of chess on um, Twitch and, you know, all over. So Yeah. Hmm. I, I know all about the world, and it's, it's a weird and interesting world. How are you about yourself? How are you doing? <sighs> yeah, I mean... Again, watching Trek whenever I can, but uh, you know, part of my shutdown activities was that I play games more. When I say that, I mean video games. So I'm sort of smack in the middle right now of playing Star Wars Squadrons, which is kind of a uh, modern day take on the old uh, flight sims like uh, X-wing and Tie Fighter. So mm-hmm. playing it on PS4 right now, and it's not bad. I, I, it frustrates me a bit because it's. I, I was kind of hoping it would be more like Rogue Squadron, which was on the N64 back in the day, because I love that game. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a struggle. I'm only a little bit in, so I don't think I've fully adapted yet. I'm sure once I get adapted, it'll be fine. But right now, it's more tedious than it is enjoyable. I just, I find it difficult when Tie Fighters go whipping past me. I can't. Find, <laughs> I can't find them. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I, I. I've always had the feeling with Star Wars flight simulators. I get very excited for them, but then I play them, and they're usually harder than I thought they would be, and they're not yeah. as fun as I hoped. Right. And I was hoping that, because the whole point of view is in the cockpit, right? As a flight simulator is. But. Yeah. I thought. Just, can you at least let me change the angle to where I can see where I can see the outside of the ship, like Rogue Squadron? Because Rogue Squadron, you could switch. Yes. And yes. you can't, you can't do that. And so, yeah. and just piloting a piloting a Tie Fighter in X Wing, it's so difficult. It's so yeah, well, tedious. Let's right think about it. Who were the best pilots? Well, they were Jedi because they have extra sensory powers. Yeah. Because us normal humans with sensory powers, it's not as easy for us. I, well, the thing is, I game all the time. I'm, I've been a gamer my whole life. And, I, and I, I'm very sensitive to games when I just feel like... The type of games where I just feel like they're making this more difficult than it needs to be. Like, I should yeah. not have this much difficulty flying an X-Wing or a TIE Fighter. And I mean, it could just be me, but yeah. So Well, now I know to stay away from that game because I have a... Low threshold for game difficulty. Right. 
But it's, I mean, it's fun. It's, it's a, it's, it is a, uh, it is enjoyable. I will probably get over the, uh, these hurdles at some point. Um, I haven't quit, so. It's good. It's good. Is there a, like, story mode? There is a story mode. Yeah, which okay. I'm told by all accounts is not very interesting. I don't really care. So, yeah. It's cool. It's cool. Got it. I, I will. Uh, I'll muddle through, and I will. Uh, I will. I will get some enjoyment out of it. Yeah. This is all just a whole new We're still waiting for a modern day quality trek game. Yeah, I don't think that'll ever happen. <laughs> no, me neither. Yeah. And speaking of the Star Wars, we have a thrilling announcement for our listeners. We're going to be in episode 10. We've decided that we are going to branch out. Not like the Branch Davidians, because we're not weirdos. We're going to branch out into another franchise, another star, if you will. And we are going to be doing a podcast on the second season of The Mandalorian. Now, this came about in sort of an organic way where, um, obviously, I'm a, more of a Star Wars fan than Kevin, mm-hmm. but he really enjoyed The Mandalorian, so we wound up talking about it a bit, and we realized that it would be interesting to do a podcast where the dynamics would be shifted, yep. where I'm the more casual Trek um, fan, and he's sort of, you know, the guide as far as picking up on all the little Easter eggs and things, where that dynamic would be reversed and um it might be neat for me to be sort of kevin's guide to the wider world of uh star wars with the mandalorian particularly since so much of this season seems to be connecting to the clone wars and the rebels uh, animated series so it would be kind of fun maybe i could give kevin some homework assignments to watch episodes of clone wars and whatnot so you can look for that coming in um the end of the month yeah, I, I don't think that my level of Star Wars fandom is on par with your level of Star Trek fandom. I actually think it's less. Mm. I think I don't so even know. Even more of a, even more of a, but newbie. One of the things that we and we'll get to lower decks here in a second. One of the things that we had talked about was, um, I mean, again, to your point, I love the first season of The Mandalorian. I am a Star Wars fan to a certain extent. But I also wanted you to have a podcast where you could play sort of this role. And I thought it would be, I also thought it would be a good thing. I'm not, I don't mean to make myself out to be a certain way, but I thought it would also be a good thing for you to kind of take the lead on on that. So Yeah, so yeah. I'll be the producer on this one, so you may have some different experiences. If you've gotten used to a certain style, it may be different for this, so expect that. What that does mean, though, is that we are also... It, but it also means we're setting the sun on this Twilight Zone podcast that we tried. Oh, yeah. I will take all the blame for that. So, I tried. I, I, I did. But I just couldn't... <laughs> I just couldn't. And yeah. Obviously, we're talking think- about the new Twilight Zone. But yeah. yeah, I think it just came down to the fact that when it came out, you didn't like it as much as you thought you would. Well, and also season two, it'd be different had they been releasing episodes weekly. But because they decided CBS decided to drop 
all these new episodes in the same season at one time, it then felt like we needed to rush to watch everything. And I kind of didn't want to do that. I was finding it difficult to find time to watch them anyway. Yeah, we were trying to do like two a week. We were trying to do like two a week, and there was just this... And then we had, you know, Lower Decks was coming, and then... Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, I didn't, I, I think I just, I didn't know when I was going to be able to get to it is the thing. So yeah. given the fact that Lower Decks is coming to an end, Discovery is going to be back next week. And then Mandalorian is going to be coming back a couple weeks after that. Granted, we are going to be doing kind of two podcasts at once, but we at least have them on sort of a weekly cadence. Right. Yeah. So had they dropped everything at once, there's just this feeling of like you need to scramble to get it up there and watch it and get the podcast up there while all these other podcasts do the same thing. Yeah. So we, right? we, so. and you know, we are, we love podcasting, but we have, you know, full-time jobs and we don't make any money doing this, but right. we spend money to do it. So, yeah. um, I always remember when the Marvel shows are on Netflix and they would drop them very late at night, maybe around midnight or something, and they would drop all the episodes, and I would wake up for work in the morning at 5.30 or 6, and someone would already have reviewed the season. And I was always... That's so ridiculous. Shocked. They do <laughs> the same home. thing, again, to go back to gaming, they do the same thing for Final Fantasy XIV whenever a new expansion comes out. People just inhale all that new content so quickly, and I'm just like, guys, come on, pace yourself, enjoy the story. Right? Like, so... But I think... What this also means is that, given that we're jumping onto this bandwagon a season late, basically, we're going to start reviewing the show at season two. And I think in the first episode, we'll probably just give an overview of what we thought of season one, but we're not going to be talking, we're not going to retroactively go back and talk about the first seven episodes. So no. unless maybe after the season, if we feel motivated to or maybe. have a reason to, but yeah, it's not but really anything in our plans. Out of the gate, we're just going to begin with how much we love season one, and then really just begin with season two. So uh, it'll yeah. be exciting. So, it'll be exciting. Yeah, and I think it will be neat for both um, people who have watched. The Clone Wars and Rebels and are kind of into all of that, um, like making all the connections. And I think it'll also be cool for people who haven't just really like The Mandalorian and they can learn a little bit about these connections as things right. come up. Because um, this is going. To, I think there's going to be a lot of rich um, story connections. And when we do that episode, as you said, it'll be later in the month. That first episode will pop up. We'll have a dedicated podcast stream board, of course, but... We will obviously put one of the episodes into the stream as well as a means to encourage the rest of you to go out and find the uh, full podcast on it to listen to uh, the rest of it. So, but Unless there's overwhelming demand to keep it in the stream, we, we will give it its own. Right. Anyway. So that brings us to... The Lower Decks. The Lower Decks. Crisis now, Point. I have to admit, when I watched the preview from last week, I was incredibly excited for this episode because what a fun concept, what a fun idea, you know? Once they explained sort of the premise, I felt like this episode is going to write itself. It is such yeah. a great idea. The the episode is very 
Well, so let me read the plot. Let me just kind of give a brief plot overview first before I go into my specifics. But basically, the episode is Mariner repurposes Boimler's holodeck program, and she casts herself as the villain in a sort of Lower Decks-style movie. And she casts herself as a villain as a means to kind of get back, take out her kind of frustration and anger with her mom, Captain Freeman. And it was... The thing about the episode is that it was very light on sort of moving the needle. It was very it, the whole episode was kind of was basically a was just Easter egg after Easter egg after Easter after Easter egg. Those kind of dictated the the plot this week, and so outside of that, nothing went on. So it was just it was you know we talk about like the A plot, the B plot, and the C plot, and then I go into this continuity watch section. Like, my whole review this week is basically going to be continuity watch, aside from a few character moments, but, like, it's all continuity watch for me this week. Right, so that's why, in my notes, I sort of are going to take a back seat a little bit in this episode, because yeah. there's so much. And, you know, I, I picked up on a lot of things, and I enjoyed it, but I know there was just so much going on. Um, but I did think that Mariner it's a great idea. has been significantly moved along. So I'm happy to see that they were able to get some um, mm. character development still in here. But so the whole episode is basically just a montage of moments that are just tribute after tribute after tribute to the Trek films. They don't mm. manage to squeeze in a moment from every single one, but no, which is it, okay. Is it, is it interesting amalgam? Because it almost to me feels like mostly original um, series crew movies, but yeah. with Abrams flourishes, like uh, visual flourishes. The Abrams, and I will admit that the Abrams stuff I actually found to be the most surprising because, which isn't to say that they're movies that don't matter, but like, because they do, whether you like them or hate them, they're part of the canon, but this is kind of the first time we've really seen them referenced in a way. I mean, Picard obviously has that connection to it, but in terms of like Easter eggs, right? Like Picard, it was just tied in plot wise, mm. but we've never, this is really kind of the first time we've gotten some sort of Easter egg to them, but they're also embracing a little bit of the absurdity of them as well, like the overabundance of just lens flares everywhere in the movie, everywhere in the episode, and even to the point where, like, I, I caught it on, like, my third rewatch, when Captain Freeman comes onto the bridge, she kind of puts her hand up in front of her face <laughs> to block the lens flare from, like, getting into her eyes, and I yeah. thought to myself, that's pretty funny. Yeah, but I have to admit, I was super happy, I mentioned this last week, I said, I hope that they have lens flares, but they never mention lens flares, and right. they didn't, and I respect right. that so much, because... It is such low-hanging fruit, poor joke that everyone, you know, every any idiot online, whenever Abrams comes up, someone's going to make some comment about right. lens flares, and it's cheap joke, and we've heard enough of it, and you're not but funny. Here's the thing, though: those lens, you flares, know who you are. Those lens flares that Abrams puts into those Trek films—they're not just in Trek movies. He's got them in his other movies as well. Yeah, like, and here's the thing that I think is, you know, I think the thing that's why he does it, I believe, is because uh, a lot of times it's with shots that are completely made on computer. But once you put right. in a lens flare, it gives it this real, like it puts a real quote-unquote lens into it. So you but feel like this is a real such, camera. 
Like, I know. They are such... So, like, again, I'm a graphic designer, video editor. Lens flares are a joke. They always have been. Like, even, even before that movie came out, like, using a lens flare was so tacky and just so corny. And it was, like... It was one of these things that, like, you would put in, like... Oh, I don't know Photoshop, but look at this cool effect I can put onto this picture. This is great. I'm a I'm a graphic designer. Like that's what that was, <laughs> right? Like that's what a lens flare was. That was the re- right. So, or like you know, you'd put them into some like corny logo or something that you were making. That oh yeah yeah. But they they were not. They were never anything that you would. It was just a packaged effect. That if oh, you okay. used it, if you use it, all it did was make you look like a, a novice. Where you thought it, made, where you thought the one using it made it, made it look like you were some pro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I associate it interestingly with seventies cinema because I don't know. I'm thinking of like I don't know if they're specifically in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but kind of like those uh, desert films, you know, and and they just are pointing the camera kind of too close mm. to the sunset, and you right. get it. So I no, think of it more as like this gritty seventies cinema. I associate it with like very early like. Like nineteen, like early to mid nineties, like like Babylon Five, like these like cheesy logos that come up that are like very early CGI animation, and like the lens flare just kind of like flourishes across the across like the cold steel t- like text effect of this title that like of this like science fiction title like like basically like low budget cheap mid nineties science fiction is what I mm-hmm. is what I associate it with. Interesting. Well, one thing I, I guess I will give J.J. Abrams. I remember I saw it behind the scenes, and he was in front of the camera, and he had this um, really powerful flashlight that yeah. he was shining into the camera. So he wasn't using a terrible after effect. He was right. actually shining big but flashlights. Actually, the but there is there is a moment in Star Trek Into Darkness, and I can I can pinpoint it exactly. It's on the USS Vengeance, and the the camera shots on oh, Carol Marcus. And it's so bright, you can't even see anything. It's like, like the screen literally turns white for a few seconds, and like she, you, all you can see is like the top of her. And I'm just like, what is going on? Like this is I, like okay, this is like way too much. I haven't watched that since the movie theaters. And it's ironic considering the title of the movie is called Star Trek Into Darkness, and there's light everywhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I'm glad they did it. I'm glad. But I was gonna ask you really quick. Because he directed episode seven and then even nine, he, did he have lens flares in Force Awakens? I don't remember. Yeah, but not much. Not much. It was tasteful. I remember the lens flares he did when when like uh, Starbase killer shot Starbase Star Killer base. I'm sorry, shot its powerful laser and you saw it go across the screen from the from the bridge on the Star Destroyer. I remember you saw like a bunch of lens flares at that point, but like it was oh, yeah. because like. And that made sense. A big it's laser like, went across, and like he yeah, likes to give the base weapon. Well, it's it's an interesting like artistic approach in the sense that I mean I still think they're awful, but I like the approach that he takes in that he tries to make it seem like this is a real world, some but some, and somebody's filming it. Yes, yeah, like, like that's what that, that's what's great. Right, that's what I think is cool about it. I still think yeah. it's a, I still hate the effect though, but I like I the idea the behind that. I remember the bridge of the Enterprise feeling like that was overkill because it was all white and bright anyway, and then you had right. the lens flares, and it was just... I guess the, he probably wants it because like it sort of adds like more motion and it makes it a little more dynamic, Right. I guess. I don't, I don't well, know. Well, the idea behind it, I know we're talking, we're going way too long on lens flares here, but like... Who would have ever expected this? I think the idea is that, unlike Star Wars, right, Star Trek, everything is sleek, shiny, and clean, 
and bright. Mm-hmm. So if you were to take a camera and film, that probably would happen. Like, you'd be generating a lot of lens flares onto your lens, a lot of flares onto your lens, right? Right. And as I said, I like the I like the approach. I like the idea that this is a real world. There's somebody, but there's somebody, and there's somebody with a camera filming all of this. It adds like that level of realism to it. But I still hate lens flares. Right. And what, what I think it served well in this episode was yeah. that it just it just let us triggered to us visually, which they did a lot throughout it, which was great. But this was just one of the visual triggers that okay, we're not in our normal world. We're in the yeah Trek film world here. Right. Um, but so to kind of set the stage for this episode, I know that was a long tangent on lens flares, but so Mariner basically messes up something on this planet, which pisses off the captain. They kind of change the, uh, she changes like kind of, it wasn't really like a prime directive type of deal, but like she kind of, you know, changed the direction that this species was going on a planet, this evolutionary process that the species was going on on this planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, Captain, do you know they did reference it as a prime directive situation? Right. Actually, you're right. They did. Okay. Let me cut that out and start again. So uh, basically, no, but I, I agree with you that I don't think it really was. So let me start again. Okay. So basically, the events get set in motion when Mariner essentially kind of, at least in the episode, sort of violates a prime directive situation where she sort of changes the, you know. I'll be a destiny of this of these two species on this planet, and it pisses off the captain. And as a result of that, Mariner like decides to take this holiday program that Boimler is using for research to help himself when he gets when he has to, you know, meet with the captain for this interview because he wants to get a better insight on their psyche so he knows what to say. She decides to really kind of change it and use it as a means to take out her anger and frustration on her mom. Captain Freeman. And you mean Freeman. Freeman, right? <laughs> and I mean she gets sent to a counselor and which strangely enough I thought was going to be more like the next generation counselor experience but like no it was actually like a legit like psychiatrist office like with bookshelves yeah. and whatnot which I thought was and kind of funny. Also the character I felt would have been much more appropriate on BoJack Horseman or some other right. show. It did not seem it did not fit in this world. I think it would have been really funny if the counselor was like a non-humanoid. It was like it's like a, if it was like a like a like what if it was like a Horta or something like that from the original series, right? Like I don't know. Right, a, a gel blob. Yeah, I thought that would have been really funny. Uh, and still had the pad, still writing stuff. It would have been interesting too because they then it would never really ask them anything. They would just talk at it and solve their own problems by talking right. to it. But what I think is what I what I so the episode basically using the holodeck as a means to kind of take out her frustration and make herself the villain. Now, obviously, not just with the films, but like this is also this episode. The idea of this is kind of a major callback to all those previous episodes where they use the holodeck just you know, to live out their fantasies as a holodeck as such. But it made me think of like episodes like Voyager's worst case scenario where like they use, there's like a, and it's obviously a holodeck gone wrong episode, but there's this holodeck program written as a training program utilizing holodeck versions of the Voyager crew. Right. Or, mm-hmm. you know, another one is where the doctor writes this, um, 
it's one of the last episodes of Voyager that you should really check out. It's called Author, Author, in which the Doctor writes a hollow novel where he kind of, and it's and it's all based off the crew, but he kind of like changes things around just slightly, and they all get really offended by it. So <laughs> it had all like the makings of like a traditional kind of like hollow novel episode that we've seen in the past. Yeah, but made it a film. But instead, they decided to load it with a bunch of the film references. So, yes, and um, I really like the fact that when Mariner first programmed it, um, it seemed like she, they asked her, "Did you just write an entire movie in in thirty seconds?" They're like, "No, no, I just started it off, and then the program's going to do the rest of it." And right. It was interesting, too, because when you looked at it, it was in script form, or it was like interior, catwalk. Right, right. Uh, two characters approach. Yeah, and the first thing, obviously, that jumped out at you was the, with just the animated titles, because the opening titles had were very reminiscent of, so the, the titles in the fifth season of Next Generation animated in a very same way. They had like a blue streak behind them. But I would say it also it more it more reminded me of the original 1978 Superman opening titles where you just had the text flying at you like that uh, like yeah. that's yeah that was like the first thing I thought of and it's of course in the proper Next Generation episode uh, Next Generation opening title font that was totally correct so I thought that was kind of a nice touch same color too nice um, I did notice that the intro music they had even though it was mostly the Lower Decks theme. There were hints of James Horner's opening score from Wrath of Khan, which I caught. Mm, yeah. So... Um, so, it, as we get into sort of the plot, it, I think probably the most amazing thing is that it... And I think maybe, actually... So, yeah, there definitely was a Next Generation feel, too, because the opening scene was so spot-on... To yep. the kind of goofiness that the next generation films open with, down to the fact that they're water skiing, and also one of them's telling a story. A story back in the academy, I held the record for whatever, mm-hmm. like water skiing, uh, yep. jet skiing. Rather. Um, it's funny because they would always try to cram in some kind of like actiony scene that they couldn't do on the show. That was the thing. So the opening scene with them on the on the jet skis. I now I'm glad you sort of make that observation because as I'm watching this I'm like I don't I don't know what they're trying I don't know what they're trying to channel right now I didn't know like I'm like what are they trying to call back to why are they on jet skis I don't get it so but when you when you talk about like them just making the academy reference and whatnot then it makes all the more sense it was just a very I just thought it was a very odd choice to to open the episode that way but yeah I thought it harkened back to, like, the dune buggy scene. Um, the famous dune buggy well, scene. My initial reaction, because Boimler gets thrown into the water like that, was there was a scene similar to that in Insurrection that where Picard and Data were, like, in the water and they had to um, float on a little raft to figure something out. But it didn't actually end up going that way anyway. So, yeah, I I, I would say that, to me, was the weirdest moment in the in the show because I, I, I felt like there was just a joke I wasn't getting. But, Interesting. Yeah, it fully yeah. landed for me. Yeah. The the best one, of course, and you'll I think you'll agree with this was the was when they flew around the ship. Yeah, that was pretty pretty great. So <laughs> I think 
without so without question, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do next week, right? But I'm just going to say it now <laughs> that probably that is hands down the best gag of the of the season. It was just the, the thing, yeah. was just the flyby of the ship. Like I, I was laughing pretty hard at that. I could not and stop you're, laughing. You're laughing just thinking about it, right? Just now. Thinking about it, yeah. It was the increasing emotional intensity of the, uh, right. the head of engineering. Well, because <laughs> was ball sobbing by the end of because uh, you know every every Trek fan knows that seems to agree except for me really. That the dry dock sequence of the Enterprise flyby in the motion picture just seems to go on for too long, and in my opinion, it doesn't go on doesn't go on long enough. But aside of, from that, I mean, I know you know they're poking fun at it at just sort of like the the duration of this flyby, but we've seen that scene so many times in the various Trek incarnations of them just like flying up to the ship and just admiring it and saying how beautiful mm-hmm. it is. We know nobody's ever been reduced to tears as far as I, I mean, Kirk was almost, Kirk was almost reduced to tears in the motion picture, I think, but yeah, but the way the music is, it's almost like they're trying to reduce us to tears. Right. But what I loved about it was like, as it kept going, each camera angle just sort of, sort of got like more and more aggressive and they were just like showing every, Oh, like here's the edge of the nacelle. And here's like the, <laughs> just yeah. Like, yeah. And I think another great part of it was that it just points out the absurdity of it even more when it happens as an episode of a show where we see the ship all the time and it's not a big deal when we see right. the ship. But now that it's a movie, oh, now we have to make it this whole production. It's so, it's so funny because when they do that in the Abrams, the first Abrams film, there isn't really much of an Enterprise flyby. I mean, it's only a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And I remember like when I first saw that movie, I was kind of disappointed by it because when you look at the motion picture, I mean, it's... The Enterprise is a character also, right? And one of my issues with the Abrams film, I don't I have very few, is that the Enterprise in that movie didn't feel like a character because there was not enough sort of beauty shots of it in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And there was an opportunity to do it at that moment and they didn't. You just kind of saw it, they just kind of flew up to it. You probably yeah. saw it for like five or ten seconds on screen, then they fly in, and that's that. And you barely get any space flyby shots of it throughout the rest of the film. And, but I love the fact that uh, Lower Decks does it in just such a absurdly ridiculous way. And you know, any Trek fan again will tell you that every Trek fan got what they were trying to do <laughs> in that moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do think that, you know, the ships are characters mainly because of the way the characters talk about them. Right. And then the fact that they have their quirks, I think. Right. Right. So I think they've already established the Cerritos as sort of a character because it is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like the Millennium Falcon. It's a hunk of junk. Yeah. And, but I will say that I, as, as, Good as every ship has been since the original Enterprise, I don't feel like any other Trek show or film has ever really successfully made me made their hero ship feel as important as the original Enterprise. They're all great ships, and right, but I, I just I don't feel like they succeeded as well as the Enterprise in the original series of making them feel like a character, right? Mm. And and I think really it all comes back to that moment that everyone makes fun of in the motion picture when you have that flyby because I think 
the reason why I, de- I defend that moment for two reasons. In that, that's don't forget that that's the first Star Trek movie ever made. Yeah, and we've only seen the crappy little sixties right. model. Right, and so that's a moment to see the Enterprise then, and even now, forty-one years later, it still looks amazing. But that's the moment where like Star Trek feels like real now, like it's on modern, it's modern special effects. It actually feels real, but also at the same time. It's Kirk's first time seeing the new ship, but it's also the audience's first time seeing the Enterprise again. Right? Yeah. So, and, you know, it's, it's there's a sweeping score by Jerry Goldsmith. I, I mean, I don't, everyone's always like, oh, you know, it's like a seven minute scene. It's not. It's like, it's like, it's like three minutes long. Yeah, I don't mind it at all. Right? Either. I mean, that's an eternity now, but like. That was the moment that every Trek fan wanted back then. Like, you wanted to look at the Enterprise. You wanted to savor every detail. You wanted to kind of, like, salivate seeing the Enterprise. Yes. Right? And And that's what that moment was. It had had only ever looked so crappy before, but you still loved it, even though it looked crappy. So I don't see it actually looking good. I wouldn't say... That it looked crappy, but it was like you had the same, you had the same like bank of shots of the Enterprise every single week, right? Yeah. And you never saw it up close like that. And, and you so, didn't see it from different angles. No, you you only saw it from one side, and they only had like, I mean, they only had about I think like ten to twelve like stock shots that they use. Occasionally, you'd get a new angle of it, but like rarely. Mm-hmm. So I mean. It was a chance to really see the Enterprise again, modernized, and seeing it up close and in such detail. And, you know, I've never seen the motion picture on the movie screen, but I know that if I did, I'd be that would be the moment I would be looking forward to seeing the most. Yeah. yeah. So but Lower Decks poked fun at it in just Perfect. all the in all the right ways. It wasn't a, I mean, again, no joke on the show has been offensive. That was that was I'm just. It's going it to be the best silent. joke. Of the- I no one said a word in it, did they? No, I, I mean Boimler said something, but like the captain's like, "What?" Yeah, but, it was just the reaction shot, right? <laughs> but, oh man, that was, that was great. But it's going to be the best gag of the season. I don't care what they do next week. Nothing is going to. I'm sorry, nothing yeah. is going to top the humor in that. And 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 that's one of those jokes that like. Only a Trek fan would re- only a Trek fan would really know what they're doing. What they're doing. I mean, I think it's still funny on another level. On even if you're not familiar with the motion picture, but if if you've been a Trek fan for so long, you, it's it's like three level. It's like three levels funnier to somebody who's may not be as familiar. Yeah, I definitely have to say I think this. I probably laughed more in this episode than any of them. Yeah, just in general. And this was one a real big one, but you know, I had already laughed a whole bunch before this too. Like skeet shooting with Da Vinci had already gotten me before that. Well, and the thing about the, even that flyby sequence is that I noticed is that they even used similar camera angles not only to the motion picture, but like they even copied some of the camera angles from Star Trek Beyond when the Enterprise is docked at Yorktown Station. They even used some of the exact same. There's like one point where they use the exact same camera pass, and I mm. thought, oh wow, that's part, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So. And I think another thing that they do really well is the Boimler, you know, mad space warlord character. Mm-hmm. I think is um, 
a great homage to the many mad space warlords that have been faced right. by Kirk. Usually they would be Klingon, but you know, a ship had that Klingon vibe. Course, darker, yeah. red, reddish lights. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was very well done. Down to having the crew <laughs> of, uh, you know, piratey people that were uh, each uniquely odd. Right. And I love the idea that, like, early on in the episode, like, they they love the fact that, oh, these are only holodeck versions of the crew, so I can say whatever I want to them. And I love how it builds to Rutherford, like, oh, my God, I can't wait to say what I've always wanted to say to the engineer. And you think he's going to go and, like, say something horrible, and all he wants to do is pay him a compliment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just it it changes a... the whole dynamic of his character completely. Yeah. Which, but fits with the, with the, with the, um... Fits with the Rutherford that we know more than if you went there and told him off. Right. Well, because, again, as we've stated about Rutherford and Tendi all season, is that they just love being there. And they have not been unhappy. Of the four characters, I mean, they really haven't been unhappy at all. So even knowing that in the back of my mind, that moment still surprised me because, I mean, because I actually thought, oh, okay, they fooled me. I thought he's going to go and actually tell the engineer off. Mm-hmm. And then when he paid him a compliment, I laughed, and then I was like, "Of course he would, because that's that's Rutherford. That's what Rutherford would do." Yeah, even when he's supposed to be a badass space warlord henchman. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And I love like later on, like he's like, "Do you want to just go and run away together?" Mm-hmm. So that was great. But I did at one point kind of share Tendy's feeling, like when they're in the mess hall and the shooting each other and you know blood splattering everywhere and Tendi's like okay you're like way too into this and at that point I thought to myself yeah I don't know about this like I do feel like she's really kind of way too into this so like I wasn't I think the first go around I wasn't totally feeling that because I don't know something about it just didn't seem right to me so it was but it was interesting that that Tendi kind of echoed my my own sort of concerns at that moment yeah, it, it was, it, you know, she was treating it like, I guess, like a video game or something. But when it's actually, when you're in a holodeck and it's people you know, it is right. odd to be that into it. Because that that's the strange thing. I mean, obviously people in my life have pissed me off and there are times like I lo- wish I could have gone back and actually said something. But like, I feel like if I had the ability to kind of recreate holodeck versions of them, I, I, like I could never imagine myself like doing harm to anybody like that. Right, like that. That that's why it kind of didn't sit well with me. So it's great that she she is obsessed with destroying Freeman, mm-hmm. her mom, the captain. You know, so this also felt very much like a Kirk situation where there would be some space warlord that had to take out Kirk because of something that happened, and not right. just Khan, but all kinds of different people that he's faced. Right. Um, and. I really love that Ransom says, you're not the first crazed space warlord I've ever seen. You can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? <laughs> and she shot him and he said, oh, she's talking, she's walking, she's walking and talking. <laughs> uh, that, that got me. The thing that I really liked and was surprising about this episode was that I think we got a very interesting way for us to really move the Mariner character and in a way push her to the next level in the arc that has been going on all season for her. Mm-hmm. 
where by facing her own self, or at least a, re- a replication of herself based on her journals and everything, she gets to understand her true feelings for her position and her ship and her mom and her friends um, better than she ever did on her own. Do you have a kind of theory on where you think Mariner is going? Uh, yeah. Or at least this season? Or so overall? I do I do think that, like we've been talking about, she's sort of been on the edge of, is she going to be... Um, is she going to just stay where she is and underachieve? Yeah. Or she said it in one of the episodes, you know, I could be a, a, a great officer, but do I really want to do that? Like, maybe right. I... Will, that's what she said to her um, her old friend, uh, who was the babysitter captain. Mm. Do I really want to do it? So in this, when she's facing herself, which is interesting, too, that they have her go to therapy earlier, but it's the real therapy, as she says, happens when she yeah. faces herself. Right. When she's facing herself, her simulated self tells her, like, um, but you don't do the hard thing, which is to actually be a good officer, because that's, like, the thing you're running away from. And also, she explains to herself that um, she hates protocol, but she doesn't hate the ship. She gets to work with her best friends, and she works with her mom, who she loves and would do anything for. So she almost gets to see, like, her own true feelings reflected back at her and then realizes, like, yeah, this all this front that I put on is, like, I'm a badass, and I don't right. care about anything, and screw the rules is all actually just... A put on because I'm insecure about. Yeah, there's definitely. I agree. There's definitely this feeling of it's all front. We know that she's, and we've seen it demonstrated. I mean, she's she's very vulnerable, right? We've seen and we've seen her insecurities. I just and that that's sort of been my confusion, right? Because I don't know. I'm finding it difficult to... I, I had been finding it difficult to kind of make any guesses as to where she was going because the the, the crux of the show is the Lower Decks crew, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm saying to myself, okay, but how long can you sort of sustain this kind of joke? Because event, they're not always going to be Lower Decks, right? Eventually, they're going to have to move up. And what does that mean for somebody like... Everybody's sort of on their way up. She's on her way down. At least that's how it's presented to us in the beginning. Right, but now she's sort of stopped and she's now wondering. She's, now she's kind of stopped, right? So... Mm-hmm. And I think that this is the final leg of it. I think she was thinking about it. She was wondering. And now I think she's convinced. Yeah. yeah that I mean, she I, should actually apply herself. Because... Yeah, I mean, because and I, I didn't know where I, I didn't know where she was headed, where they were kind of taking this character, and I liked the fact that last week we kind of I think it was last week we had made some comparisons to Michael Burnham, and we were saying that this is almost like the Michael Burnham story, but done right. Oh yeah, or just that I yeah I, we like I like her arc and her right. as a character. I care I just, about her more than I care about Michael Burnham. I just, I didn't, I didn't know, I, 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 I've been having trouble seeing where she's going. Because also, I know I said this a few weeks ago, probably like, maybe third or fourth episode. 
I think I initially thought that the show was going to focus on Boimler, and she was going to kind of be the the um sort of the threat to his moving up in his career. Like she was going to be the one who was always going to embarrass him or put him in a bad situation or something that he's going to just perceive as a bad situation as a threat to his career. Like I thought, so I think, I think that's what I think that's what I thought the role she was going to play was. And it wasn't until maybe like the, again, third, fourth, maybe fifth episode we were doing this podcast. And I kind of came to the realization like, this is kind of the Mariner show, isn't it? And you were like, yeah. Because I think even leading up to then, the show wasn't promoted like with a sort of main character in mind. Right? Like right. Discovery was promoted like clearly with Michael Burnham as the ma- as the lead. But this yeah. show didn't really go that way. It was just yeah, more of like a, thought, the ensemble. I thought also from the promotional materials that it would be more the Boimler show. Yeah. I agree. Right. It was difficult to get a sense of that in the beginning, and yeah, yeah it we thought it was like, And we even mentioned it early on that it seems like uh, Mariner's role will be to like get Boimler out of his, um, uh, you know, obsessed with rules and and right. whatnot, and kind of make him loosen up a little bit and see what it's really like. But instead, um, maybe it was kind of the other way around that. Not that he really did it, but for Mariner to become a little bit more like Boimler just so that she is actually able to hold a position of command. It'll be interesting for me to go back and watch the season once this is over with and sort of look for that moment where I kind of came to that realization. Like, when did I realize that this is really kind of the Mariner show? I mean, it might have been the episode when with um, the terraforming and she was working with Freeman. And they kind of regain oh, yes. the trust in that way. That might have been the one, but I don't know. So yeah, but I, I, I'd say yeah. right from the beginning though, he was my favorite character. Yeah. It, oh, so it totally. made sense. I think I think what I'm going to want to do is when I go back and rewatch, I'm going to try to see if I if any of those moments were there, sort of in a more subtle way, before I realized that no, this is actually the Mariner show. Like, was there any sort of clue? Right. Clues beforehand. Right? Because it yeah. seemed like she was just the officer who had the experience. She was going to get him out of the sticky situations where necessary. Mm-hmm. She was going to be more of like a... She was going to like look over him, really, as he advanced. And I thought maybe as he begins to advance, maybe she'll kind of give it a second look. And be like, maybe yeah. I should do the same thing. And, and what we right. saw at the end of this is he has all but blown a big chance of advancement. Right. In, in, yeah. in I don't know. If, I think we're. I think we're still going to do funniest line, but I think it's one of my funniest lines. It's <laughs> when he's in the interview and he says, "Mariner is hot." I don't know. She's nasty. <laughs> and um, Captain Freeman is what? And then he runs out. That was that was fantastic. That was really really good. She's hot. <laughs> Oh, how inappropriate. But did you know that it was a secret that that was her mom? Well, we knew because that was I her didn't know. We knew that I was didn't, her mom. Right, but did we know it was a secret? No. I, well, okay. I, I don't think... I didn't think well, so. It was, well, because it wasn't... I don't... It wasn't really presented that way beforehand. It was just like... It's just that it wasn't mentioned. 
Yeah, I, I, I just, I, in my head, I thought, well, boy, but everybody knows that. And then I realized, oh, wait, I guess they don't. But I just assumed that they did. Right, right, exactly. And so it it opens up a question for me, which, and probably for everybody, what does that mean? Like, Brad's treating it like it's, like, oh, my God, I just found out something horrible. I guess I don't... Well. Go ahead. I think Brad's reaction is because of what the captain said at the funeral. I don't know what I would do to anyone that found out my secret. Kick them out of Starfleet? Demote them? Well, that's true. That's true. I, but it seemed a very strange thing to say. Well, that's the thing. Of course. I, like, I don't think that... I, I don't think I fully buy the sort of dilemma. I don't really get the dilemma of that. Like, what's... In other words... What's the big deal? That right, right. Yes. Maybe we'll find that. Out. I'm sure we'll find that out next week. It seems like based on the trailers, that's going to be a something that's going to come up. Right, because we've seen it in Star Trek that people have served with their family in different ranks than them, right? We have. I, I, I guess. I mean, you've got uh, Wesley Crusher and his mom, for instance. I, I, but I guess what I'm saying is, I don't really. I mean, aside from, I mean. Not what she said in the holiday program, notwithstanding, what potential sort of impact does that information have on the group dynamic, if anything? Like, how's that going to change anything, if at all? I can see it changing. I mean, I can see it changing their relationship just because Boimler, you know, I mean, Boimler spent the whole episode trying to figure out what Captain Freeman, what kind of cookies she would like. Right. Mariner's got all that information for him. So now she becomes almost like something for him to use potentially to get ahead. Yeah. So that could be a possibility. Um, maybe it would, because she does kind of get away with a lot. So maybe that would hurt ship morale in that. Why does she? No, now we know why she gets away with everything because well, she's the captain's daughter, and then people might not trust the captain. I, I guess. I, the thing is, like, even though even though you say that she gets away with everything, like there hasn't been. To my to my recollection, a sort of moment where one of the characters questions that, like, why can That's you get away with all that? Like, I can't believe you're talking to the captain that way. I can't believe you know. There hasn't been anybody to sort of like play the yeah play Wimler the role. Has never, yeah, nobody. Wimler has never asked, which is That's, strange. That's the thing. Like, it's not. It hasn't been presented in universe as as something that as a question that somebody should be asking. Right, like yeah. that. That's why I'm, and I think that's why, like, when that information was revealed to Boimler, and mm-hmm. we're like, oh yeah, we're the audience, we know that. Yeah, and I assume though that the characters do, but it did. It had that feeling of, um, yeah, uh, not to bring back a common criticism of writing, but you know, I wish the seed had been planted earlier, <laughs> rather yes. than just dropping it on us and like letting us know in the moment this is important, and here's the reveal, you know, planted a little bit, but yeah, I, I don't fault it that much. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I'd have to go back and watch the first episode, because I know there was that moment between Captain Freeman and her husband, the Admiral. Like, oh yeah, now you're going to be stuck with her, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't... I have to see, because I don't, I don't know. I don't remember what they said in full. I don't believe a seed was planted earlier, like you no, said. And I think that that's something that 
like, what if it had been, what if the seed was planted, right? And in various episodes since then, not every episode, but like, there were moments where like, oh, it was, the secret was almost revealed. Yeah. And we ever, and, and, so if I do that again. Like, if the seed had been planted in the first episode, there could have been moments throughout the season, not in every episode, but moments where, like, that, somebody, like, where that, it was almost accidentally revealed, but it was averted. Right? Like, I don't know. I just, I, I think it's, I don't understand the threat of the information just yet. Yeah. So... Uh- Either. Yeah, and why she would be have such a... Because I guess, um, you know, Boimler did a good job in that we trust that these are accurate representations in the, his program. Right. So why would it be such a threat that she would have to get rid of someone that knew about it? That's not clear at all. Even if it right. were... Because the things that I mentioned as possibities are very minor. Yeah. Because no, we know there's no Starfleet regulation about having your family members serve under you. So that's... No, and... I, I don't believe there is. Maybe we'll find out next week. I mean, I I have to believe that we will, only because they made such a thing out of it this week. Uh, well, but yeah, I I, I I'm I would say I'm more confused than sort of shocked. I mean, can you think of other TV shows where like <laughs> like don't do it? I'm, don't no, do I'm it. trying to like point to an example, but like. I can give you one. What is... What are, like, those TV shows where, like, some member of a cast has vital information, and so many times throughout the season, it was almost... Oh, okay. ...revealed almost. to somebody, and it was like, no, 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 like, oh, thank God you didn't say anything, or, like, it's... You know what oh, I mean? Oh, here you go. I go on. Um, the one where Tom Hanks is a, um, has to dress as a woman to get the housing with the other guy. Oh, uh, Bosom Buddies. Yeah. Or it's like, um... Okay, hey, company. Now I can think of it. Like, Frasier, Niles has a huge crush on Daphne throughout like the entire oh. show, basically. There you go. And everybody knows. I mean, there's not... There hasn't... But there was never really... There weren't very that many moments where, like, it was almost... Where, like, the, somebody almost revealed it, but it added to the sort of comic tension of the show. Yeah. Oh, Green and, Company, Jack Tripper was supposed to be gay. That's why they let oh, him there you go. women. There you go. So whenever he would be on a date, he would act almost see the landlord. Right. And when Mr. Roper sees him, it's like he had to explain. Right, yeah. there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So Something, yeah. Yeah, like, Man, I, I our kind of... TV references are dated. <laughs> well, but they, but I mean, I mean, I'm not really kind of, I'm sure they, I have no doubt it's going to, you know, potentially pay off next week, but, or this week, but I say this week because we're recording last week's this week. Sorry. So I just, I don't know if that's, I feel like that is a potentially missed comedic opportunity for some good comedic tension this season, but I don't, I I don't know. I'm just, you know, I'm kind of just throwing shit at the wall or something Yeah, because I think they've done great. Right, but I, I think. But I think been. to your point, it was sort of revealed as if a seed had been planted earlier when it wasn't. Yes, because we found out she was her daughter, and it was a, an interesting reveal. Yeah, it was when she was stuck into the dad, like you said. Right. But it was surprising for us, but we never got any indication as to whether the crew knew or didn't know. That's the thing. 
maybe it would have it could have landed more if they if they hadn't revealed it to us the audience oh yeah right but again you had a whole episode that focused on their mother-daughter relationship yeah right yeah but if that was something that they just didn't that's a good reveal to the audience then we're like wait what the surprise of it yeah because i don't think the fact that she is her daughter like even if she was and the way she speaks to freeman like out of line and everything like that that wouldn't change anything if it hadn't been revealed to us because it's it's very much in line with it would still be very much in line with sort of the way her character is oh she's on her way down look at the way she's mouthing off to the captain and the show's a comedy so like that i wouldn't be sitting there going like how come she's not getting thrown in the brig or like like i wouldn't look at it that way because i know that i'm watching a comedy and given the way mariner carries herself it wouldn't have been a stretch for me so had that secret been revealed to us the audience at the same time i think maybe it would have been more effective and i say this now having not seen obviously the final episode of the season yet so right yeah i'm i'm hesitant to say that because i do think it's been quite good but right. yeah i see what you it almost seems like there was a cut a scene that got cut out or the episodes were in a different order or something yeah So can I move on really quickly to Continuity Watch, or do you have more you want to cover? Uh, one more thing that I want to say. Okay. Because my Continuity thoroughly, Watch is a long list. Oh Yeah. I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed Tendy's growing discomfort with being cast in the role as the uh, oh. slave-acquiring, um, yes. pirate, piracy-loving, um, dirty Orion. Because we got to see... That there's, uh, I mean, the, the term is microaggressions. There were a lot of microaggressions against Tendi about her Orion identity, and it was really interesting to see that, like, you know, she is a science, she's a scientist, she's a technical, she's an engineer type, right? Yeah. And so, to have this suggestion, well, since you're an Orion, you're going to be a pirate, and you're going to get slaves, you're going to capture slaves, right? It's very, very much like a racist. Um, idea like yeah, your people have these traits and they're all bad, and yeah. so therefore that's what you should do. And it was it was it was really neat because at first she didn't really want to speak up, but she kind of said, "Ah, uh, you can call it with the slave thing," and it slowly grew. And then finally she uh but, she was able to explain it. But I really loved when one of the other crew members said, "You dirty Orion," and then she um. She sort of realized that I forget who it was, but she said his name because she realized in that moment, like, oh my god, this guy's actually racist against the Orions, or he would never have said that. Right. Well, it's funny because even the audience is like, oh yeah, an Orion would obviously would make that association immediately. Like, oh, she's an Orion. Like, she comes from a race of slaves. Yes. Yes. And it's funny because I, we mentioned it a little bit before. I said how it's almost owners. as if the characters on the, the character it's almost as if the characters on the show know about Orion's only through the original series, like we do. Because and that's the thing. Like, and she kind of did some mini world building there when she said, "We haven't been pirates for like five years. We don't know. The, we don't really know the state of the Orions <laughs> beyond the. Well, the thing is, we don't know the state of the Orions really beyond the original series. We've not right. really seen. But them. I really did love how she said. <laughs> how, she kind of gave in anyway. 
it was hilarious though. She said, we haven't been pirates in five years. <laughs> you expected she was going to say something like hundreds of years, but five years is not a long time to not be doing something terrible right. like you, slave trading and piracy. Right, and that's not going to that's not going to change your association after yeah. <laughs> after just we five years. We haven't traded slaves in five whole years. Right. Oh, okay. Well, that changes things then. <laughs> yeah. And then she did say, yeah, some of us are, what'd she say, like, a, a, a aggressive capitalist right. criminal thing. But it was kind of neat, because she did admit it, too, like, I mean, you do have a point, <laughs> a lot of Ryans are as terrible as you say, but not all of us. Not, right, right. I, mm. I really enjoyed that bit. Oh, and one more thing. At the beginning, as a rat, so I'm a, I'm a pet owner, and I own rats, five of them. I'm very jealous, too. I love them so much. They're pretty great, I have to admit. Mm. Uh, I never thought I'd be a rat owner, you know. I, I'm not like I don't think of myself as like a rat guy. I had dogs. Well, and just before. a quick side note: when you told me you got them, I was so excited. <laughs> I was so happy. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I don't, I don't own any rat, huh? Or it was mid shutdown actually that we got the beginning of the shutdown. Yeah, so we haven't been able to see them as much as I'm sure you would have liked. I could not. Well, when you got them, I could not wait to come over there and see them, and I was so happy when I did. Yeah. So in the opening scene, there was a planet of rats, humanoid rats. And they were oppressing the lizards and growing them for food. And um, I thought it was funny because uh, we got a little bit of rat humor in there. Mm. Because when they then asked them, like, what if we gave you replicators? And they said, could it replicate food pellets? Because that's what rats eat. You give them basically these little food pellets. So it was very funny to think mm. that they would be raising lizards to eat them. But really, all they wanted was their rat food that you would get at the pet store. They also eat my discarded food that ends up in the uh, trash outside, because I do see them out there on occasion. Not your rats, but just yeah. rats in general. Yeah, no, and I make my rat salads with, um, they really like uh, arugula. When I, was there, and peas. when I was there, you were feeding them uh, Cheerios in the little uh, container. Oh, they do love Cheerios, too. Mm-hmm. You ripped that thing right out of my hand. They love, they love a lot of food, really, as you probably would imagine. Yeah, you've got you've got a uh, you've got a palace for them in that place. It's huge. Yeah, you, you yeah, spoil those boys. Yeah, we built them up. Now they got three cages that are all connected with tubes. Continuity watch. Uh, oh God, just so much. All right, you were cut out for you, sir. So much. I'm I'm. I. So. I was talking to somebody at my job about this, who's also a fan of the show. We were talking about just the jokes that were coming in on this, this particular episode. And I made the, huh? They were coming in hot and heavy. And I'm, and I, we were like kind of going back and forth about which ones we loved. And there was some that he didn't even catch. He's like, Oh, I didn't, I missed that one. I missed that one. And I, and I said to him, I go, it's, I said, it's kind of like police squad airplane, naked gun in the sense of like, you know, the jokes are just coming in left and right, just all over the place, and you're just not going to catch them all, right? I mean, there are no visual right. gags, but like this episode was just so, because this episode is the show basically now has turned its Easter eggs. Easter eggs are just part of the humor now. It's now mm-hmm. it's just sort of like now they just figure like how many of these can we throw in? Can we jam into an episode, right? Yeah. And I re- and at first I was like, why are they throwing in so many? Then I realized like halfway into the season like oh yeah these are just this is just part of the humor of the show they just name drop stuff just for the hell Definitely. of it and that and it's great yeah and it was interesting because on this usually someone's will put questions for you right and i got one question down and then i said oh, screw it this is just too much but uh, can i ask you the one question go ahead who is zon i'm so glad you asked that 
Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that. And I will address that because that's okay, actually one of my favorite lines. And I think you're going to really appreciate awesome. this. Take it right. away. So now I'll go through my list as always. If this, and I speak to my, to the listener community, if I missed anything, definitely let us know. This is what I caught. I double checked stuff on memory alpha and various sites to make sure. And I didn't, I don't think I missed anything. But there could also be things that, while not a direct Easter egg, could be interpreted as such. Like when you, when we said a few weeks ago, it's like, oh, there was something like, oh, and they're running through the halls. Like it wasn't, it reminded us of like Chekhov running through the hall in the in the movie. But like, even though it's not a direct reference, it just reminds you of something yeah. earlier. So if, even but, if there were moments like that. But, but there was, I don't know if this is on there or not, but it was a joke that had to do with that moment from the Abrams films. Right, Chekhov running in the halls. Right. And I, I was one of the funnier lines, and it was also an Easter egg bit. So, so I'll, I'll do that one, that's the only one I got. Alright, so Leonardo oh. da Vinci. Okay. Probably asking yourself, why the hell is Leonardo da Vinci on the holodeck? Um, that I know. You do know. Thanks to you. Oh yes, because the episodes you watched. So Leonardo da Vinci was a holodeck program that was used by Janeway a couple times on Voyager. They kind of, you know, throughout Voyager, they kind of experimented with different holodeck programs. Like, you know, like in the next gen, Data had Sherlock Holmes. They kept trying to like, they kept trying different things out with Janeway. Nothing really stuck. First, she had a gothic novel, and they only did it for a few episodes, and they went with Leonardo da Vinci, and then that eventually kind of stopped. Okay, I remember a few. I saw a few with da Vinci. Yeah. I he was okay. He appears a couple times. Uh, I would say so, and it was actually played by um, John Reese Davis on the show. Oh. Uh, I don't know if he did the voice in this episode. Probably not. Mariner's therapy scream is, of course, a nod to Kirk's con scream. Mm. I, I, and I just, I gotta, and I have a note here. I just gotta be, what you know, I'm so sick of these Wrath of Khan references. They're, they're just. Stop referencing Wrath of Khan. Like, there's so many Wrath of Khan references, like, throughout everything. And, like, okay, we get it. Stop. Please. Yeah. Not only that, you're referencing, you're doing the same gag over and over again. We've had, like, multiple Khan screams in in the show already. Like, stop doing that. Please. Wrath of Khan's not my favorite movie anyway, and that's, maybe there's just a little bit of a personal stake in that comment, but, um... I mentioned earlier the opening titles to Mariner's movie sort of animate similarly to the Next Generation Season 5 title sequence. I also mentioned that the opening chords of the Hollow Novel music had little hints, what sounded like, of James Horner's opening title from The Wrath of Khan. Um, the warp effect for the movie Cerritos looked very similar to the Abrams warp speed effect. Mariner was quoting Shakespeare just like General Chang did in Star Trek VI, The Tempest specifically. Uh, Mar- so, okay, so here's a case of, while maybe not a direct Easter egg, reminded me of something. So, when villain Mariner enters the Cerritos, her thing kind of like penetrates the hall and she gets out and enters in the hall. It's a very similar entrance to Krall that Krall makes in Star Trek Beyond. When the thing kind of his ship kind of busts through the, the the deck and he just kind of walks off and then he begins shooting everybody in the hallway like it was a very very similar mm-hmm. appearance. Um, the Cerritos crash, of course, is very similar to the Enterprise crash in Star Trek Generations, and of course, uh, 
Star Trek Beyond and the whole like and it's even streaking across the skies reminds me of the Enterprise destruction in uh, Search for Spock. The crashed tomb on the planet's surface at the end of the episode is like Spock's tomb in Star Trek Three. You had the end signatures at, like at the end of Star Trek Six, which I thought was really cool. That was such a great touch. That was a really that, one, I, that was a really yeah, great touch. I never thought about the end signatures, and then when I saw it, I, I remembered. You know, but it, it's not. It's not it's, like an obvious thing to. Well, the thing is, it's such a unique character. thing, even in the Star Trek, even in Trek, because n- we've never seen that again. It's yeah. such a. Well, it's it's a, a weird. It's almost an oddity in a lot of ways. You never yeah. see any of them. You never saw any of the. I actually kind of hoped that Nemesis was going to do it at the time. Uh, but yeah. it is didn't. very strange. It's almost as if someone put forward the idea and everyone said, "Well, I guess there's no reason not to do it." Yeah. You know, there's no compelling reason to. But do I thought it they, when they did that though, like in six, I thought they were actually kind of like maybe potentially like starting some kind of tradition. Like, oh, is this how every crew now in the future is going to sign off? Like literally sign off. <laughs> so I, I think it's like this is the last time we're going to see these people, so that's why we're doing this. Yeah, I mean, and of course we, we saw. Can, yeah, and of course we saw Kirk in the next movie that, anyway. Yeah, but even that wouldn't fully make sense because right. So, my next note will answer your question, Zon. So great. This is what it is. I, I To make it easier, I copied this note word for word from Memory Alpha, so thank you, Memory Alpha. So Mariner compares Boimler's role in her movie to Zahn, noting that his role likely wouldn't make the final cut. So the character of Zahn was originally supposed to have a significant role in the cancelled TV project Star Trek Phase 2, but did not survive its transformation to Star Trek The Motion Picture. Zahn was actually the replacement for Spock, because Leonard Nimoy was not going to be in... Star Trek yeah. Phase 2. So Zahn was another Vulcan who basically was going to take the place of Spock. Now, obviously, Leonard Nimoy did return to play Spock in Star Trek The Motion Picture because you know, Phase 2 became Star Trek The Motion Picture. However, however, the actor, because they did cast somebody for Zahn on the series, mm-hmm. the actor who plays Zahn is actually in the movie. He's in the motion oh, okay. picture. Yeah, um, got it. And Zahn is actually. It was a deep one, then. Uh, right. It was great, and I laughed because I knew exactly what they were talking about. But uh, but Zahn is actually a canon character because you do see his name on a board in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. So even though we've never like met Zahn in universe, he does exist. And I'd always kind of hoped that maybe at some point down the line we would see him. Which I just think would have been cool. But that also yeah. ties into my favorite line of the week, which is, I don't want to do a movie. That's okay. You were kind of a Zon, to be honest. You probably weren't going to make the final cut. Who's Zon, exactly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but here's the thing. I don't think we get, I don't see much of this anymore, but maybe it's just because I'm not looking for it. You know, haters like to say these people don't know Trek. They don't. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that you referenced Zon, referenced a character from an abandoned Star Trek. Yes. Pro, uh, series. Yeah. Like to you, like you just said, that is some deep cut right. continuity. That is some deep cut. That is a yes. deep cut Easter egg. But here's the thing: when you are a committed hater, 
you we know how this goes. You just change your critique because now the oh, critique yeah. would be, but they wouldn't know who Zahn is. They wouldn't know he got cut because the movie doesn't exist in the blah, 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 blah. You know, so th- they have to pick a critique. It's either the writers don't know Star Trek or they know it so much they put in too many references that well, they are not logic. The hater mentality is you got to move that goalpost, right? Yes. you got to move that goalpost. So, yeah, it's just you. It, it's an art form. So I think my favorite line, which is also based on having Trek knowledge, um, when Rutherford is talking to Billups and, sir, are you okay? I'll live, but the crew. And he says, we'll be fine. I initiated a rapid repeating emergency transport sequence and beamed the entire crew before we crashed. But that's impossible. No, it's a movie. You can beam whatever you want. You can do all sorts of beaming stuff in a movie because it's so true that it seems, especially, I think, in the Abrams films where, like, emergency crazy beaming became these action moments. Yeah, the the transported... The transporter's functionality, whether it works or doesn't work, is dictated by the plot. It works when it needs to, and mm-hmm. it doesn't work when it needs to. And and its limits can expand or retract. Exactly. And they can always come up with some insane techie reason for beaming somebody out of a sticky spot. Yeah. Right? So then like it, one, whenever they come up with a new beaming thing, then it always makes you wonder in any situation, like, why didn't they just beam them out of there? Right. I remember there was one in Vo- one sticks out of my mind on Voyager called a skeletal lock, right? And I th- and I thought to myself like and they explain how it works. But then like two seasons later you're like they they're in the same and you, they're in the kind of the same situation. You just thought, "Well, how come you can't you did the, the skeletal, skeletal lock thing like 2 years ago? <laughs> Why can't you do it again?" Yeah. So like they weren't sort of like they were not accruing these types of like transporter techniques over the years, right? It wasn't like, oh yeah, we can just kind of no. They had to. It had to be specific to that situation. It seems like when the real reason yep. is you just bring on another writer and they don't add that to the Bible. Yeah. So I like that quite a bit. So I think overall, my final conclusions for the week is. You know, we were talking about it a little, ago, a little while ago. You know, what does it mean now that Boimler knows that Freeman and Mariner are mother-daughter? Um, but other than that, overall, I thought it was a really fun episode. I thought fairly light on character development outside of Mariner. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I like I said, I think I probably laughed more than any other of episode this season, especially just because the entire what I called the ship porn shot. I was yep. laughing, I think, the entire time because yeah. the shots were great, and then when they would cut back to the crew, it would be even more emotional. It's fantastic. So, yeah, very, very funny. I really liked what happened with Mariner. I've really yep. been enjoying Mariner's story and the fact that now it seems that she is uh, firmly uh, progressed is, is nice to see. My last bit is just um, a little bit of Star Trek news, not much in the world of Star Trek news. Next uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, October 6th, uh, Picard will be released on, season one will be released on Blu-ray, for those who do not know. Oh. So. Any any exciting extras? Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't have the full list in front of me. But, I mean, the... Since uh, CBS has taken over the uh, Trek licensing... They've been very generous with 
bonus features on these discs. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, and then the other thing, of course, is that Discovery comes back next week. But oh, yeah. more on that later. Right. We've got a kind of, um, I would say, full slate of podcasts this week. We're recording this one a little bit late. This is on a Monday. Yeah. But um, we have the final episode of the season this week. And then we also have the recap episode of the season, probably combined with the build-up episode to season three of Discovery, because that begins a week from Thursday. We've always done we've always done a season wrap-up, and then we've kind of traditionally done a sort of speculative episode before a new season or series begins. So we've got at least three podcasts that we need to record this week. So. Yeah, or like over the next over the next week let's put it that way yeah let's put it that way over the next uh, what are we at like 11 days or so so yeah yeah, yeah. it's crazy to me that so, it's crazy that Discovery's coming back I mean it feels like it's been so long I mean it really feels like it's been 930 years yeah it has been a, like a long time right we've watched Picard since then, and the shutdown, and then a whole, you know, two whole seasons of Star Trek. Yeah. So that's our plan. So yeah, we're gonna. So we obviously we're talking about this episode, episode nine. We'll have episode ten later this week, which is the finale, and then we'll probably just combine the season wrap up of Lower Decks, where we talk about how we felt about that season, and then. The speculation on what we could potentially see in season three of Discovery, and then we'll go from there. And hopefully, after season one of or um, episode one of season three premieres, we will no longer mention ever again the finale of season two. <laughs> yeah, we want to maybe even try not to mention it that much in the speculation for season three. Yeah, well, we have to. We at least have to uh, bring it up when we talk about episode yeah. one of season three, just to kind of reorient ourselves, but acknowledge that it that it it was yeah. there. We have to acknowledge acknowledge the events of, but we won't dig too deep into our critiques. I don't yeah, think those are well documented. Refer back to our finale of season two episode or our recap for the real rant of season two. Of Maybe I'll go back and watch that episode just to you know prepare <laughs> to prepare myself. <laughs> In any event, well, yeah, we've already had to watch some table. Read. Oh boy! In any event, we will yes, event, be back later this week. And as always, you can tweet at us at Star Trek We Trust on Twitter. And I think, yeah, that's that. So, see everyone later this week. And if any of you really appreciate the show, if you really appreciate the show and you're good at chess and you want to give me lessons, go for it. Find a way to pay back the enjoyment that you actually get in we your missed, ear actually you each kinda, and every week. Actually, you kind of missed out on something with that chess reference. I'm just realizing. Just to be clear, you're not learning three. Dim- you're no, you're not learning three dimensional chess. <laughs> no, not yet. But I do hear that they someone has made a version that you can play. So I'll have to try it. I just wonder how it would be any different. But I don't know how to play chess, so I don't know. Yeah, there's also this one called like I don't know what it's like time travel chess i don't even know what that could possibly mean but so yeah there are other chess i have no idea i could not answer that for you i'm probably gonna look that up before i go to bed tonight 
please do. I want to know. I want to know. Anyway, okay. peace out, everybody. Thanks for listening. Later, skater.